0: you're listening to oy patla kala
1: And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast between books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Ye.
0: And I'm Riri Rayu.
1: And on this episode, we are bringing you an author chat with debut author Kyla Zhao, um, the author of The Fraud Squad, which just came out on January 17th about a girl who frauds her way into Singaporean high society.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's I, I always find it really interesting to talk to authors who don't live in America because it's always, like, like a refreshing take. And also, like, I was pretty excited for this book when we announced it in our book deals. I think it was, like, about, like, last year, I think. Um, There was a lot of buzz for the book, and I can see why, because there's, like, that glamour aspect to to the book as well. Yeah. We talked to Kyla about her journey uh, to becoming an author and uh just like singaporean high society her background in working in fashion so it was a really fun talk i know i'm all about eat the rich but also the rich has nice things so i <laughs> love reading about it yeah <laughs> so i had a lot of fun talking to kyla and reading her book but yeah. uh without further ado here's our chat with kyla ciao we're here with Kyla Zhao, the author of The Fraud Squad. Welcome to the show, Kyla.
2: Thank you for having me. Hi.
0: So I heard that you wrote your debut novel during the pandemic. And, you know, like I I heard a lot of people saying, oh, maybe I should write a book or, you know, learn how to bake bread during the pandemic. But a lot of people uh, didn't really follow through on that. So what was your experience like? Uh, working on a a novel during the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think it didn't really stem from a desire to be productive or to really accomplish anything. It was more for me an escape from the pandemic and just from being lonely, um, being by myself. And I think writing was a way for me to channel that kind of fear um, into something that was beyond my life at that point. And I was able to kind of lose myself in this world that I was crafting and that was a very nice escape from pandemic reality. And it was actually very freeing because um, I think my whole life I had certain expectations for myself and I always felt like I had to live up to certain expectations. But during the pandemic, because I was living alone and that was obviously you know like a very lonely experience, but the one upside was that for the first time I felt like I didn't really have to listen to what anyone else wanted from me. And I didn't really have to care about what other people were thinking. Um, or to mind if I was, you know, like fulfilling their expectations or their opinions. I could really just do something that was for myself. And so that's why I decided to give writing a try. I think if I was still living on my college campus at a point, I wouldn't have dared to try because then I have to tell my friends, oh, I'm writing a book. And then that could have led to questions. Even well-intentioned questions could have just made me started doubting myself and I would have never carried through with it. So
0: I couldn't help but notice that you have a degree in communications and uh, also psychology. This is very different from creative writing. Uh, did you like? Did you grow up reading a lot of books? Uh, did you ever thought that you would ever write a novel one day?
2: Yeah, um, I was definitely a bookworm growing up. I read a lot of books. And I think it was because I read a lot of books that I had so much admiration for authors and so much awe for them. I held them in such high regard that I genuinely felt like I could never be like close to as good as they were, especially my favourite authors. I did do writing growing up, but it was always non-fiction writing. I was writing for magazines, like fashion magazines, like Vogue or Harper's Bazaar or Tetler. But I think writing a magazine article is very different from writing a novel, Um, The letter definitely feels much more like a marathon, and it requires a lot more sustained time and effort and patience and stamina. So it was um, a very new challenge to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of bylines in all these great magazines, and now you have, like, you're a debut author now. I mean, how was what was that transition like to switch to a creative writing mode? Like, did you take any, like, did you read up on creative writing? Did you take any classes, or was it all just like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write this book, and then poof.
2: Yeah, I think I just kind of sat down and told myself that there was a certain kind of story I was really craving at a point in time in my life. And I couldn't find enough of such stories to satisfy my reading appetite. And so I just told myself that I was going to write the story I wanted to read. And that was very freeing because I didn't really have to follow any guidelines or any rules. And at that point in time, I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything about the publishing industry. I didn't know anything about the writing world. And in a way that was very liberating because I didn't know know that certain rules existed. Or, you know, now that I'm much more like, familiar with this industry and with this process, you will often hear authors say there is a certain way to write something and there are certain rules that you must follow. And there are some things that you should never do. And that's very prescriptive. And I'm glad that I didn't know such things existed when I was just starting out so that I wouldn't just blindly follow them.
0: Yeah. um, I heard that you were active during Pitch Wars. Uh, Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, You know about Pitch Wars? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this podcast has been around since late 2016. So uh, we've been around since I think Pitch Wars started. I think they started in like 2017. Uh, But what was it like stepping into this space where marginalized writers, you know, had the chance to find mentors and learn how the publishing industry works, which is, you know, publishing is known to be very, very white, very male. And it's really hard to get your foot in the door. So uh, what was it like just joining that space?
2: Yeah, it was definitely such an awesome opportunity. And I think the one thing I'm really grateful for is meeting some of my best writing friends through this program. Like we met um, one and two years ago, but I still talk to some of them today. I still consider them to be good friends even beyond just writing. And for that, I will always be very grateful. And like you said, it was an amazing opportunity to just get mentorship from published authors My mentor, um, she's also from a marginalized background. And I think just having someone to turn to for advice, for guidance about navigating this very complicated industry, and also just getting um, a sense of the whisper network, because when you're just starting out, you don't know what are some of the pitfalls. You don't know what are some of the red flags to look out for when you look for an agent or when you're looking for a publisher. And then when you can get it from authors who have been there, done that, it helps so much.
0: Yeah, over the years, we've definitely seen a growth in Asian and Asian American writers. Um, You know, most of it has been in the YA and children's space, but thankfully we're seeing it grow in other areas as well. Um
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really cool to see young people like you and, you know, you're you're one of those new generations of really very young published writers that are pursuing creative passions with a lot of success and it's really cool to see this new generation of writers just come out and you know put out published books. I guess as someone who didn't necessarily study to be like a creative writer, um do you have any Tips or advice for people um like yourself who have always been into stories and might be considering writing a story of their own?
2: Yeah, um I mean I think there are so many ways you can like brush up your technical skills. Um I would say that none of them are necessary. I don't think there's a need to get like prescriptive about prescriptive about it. Like you don't have to go to a writing school. You don't have to enroll in an MFA. You don't have to take part in a writing course. There are definitely ways to enhance your craft without going through any of that. And I think meeting other writers is a really great way of doing that. Because you learn so much from reading other people's works. And that's also how you can get a lot of inspiration. So I think definitely my biggest advice would be to meet other authors. And even though writing can be a very solitary activity, um I would definitely encourage all aspiring writers to just kind of get out of your bubble and talk to other people. You learn a lot more than you expect. And also to not pigeonhole yourself into a certain genre. Like just because you are reading YA doesn't mean that, sorry, just because you're writing YA doesn't mean that you cannot read like adult novels or like middle grade novels and vice versa, just because you're writing fantasy doesn't mean you cannot read horror or romance. I think that's something you can learn from everyone and from everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of young writers, you're the second author, second Asian American author I know, who uh, went to Stanford and decided to write a novel during the pandemic. I mean, like Grace D. Lee, the author oh, yeah. of Portrait of a Thief, <laughs> she yes. wrote during the pandemic and she goes to Stanford right now for medical school. Uh, she Shiran Zhe Zhao, they wrote Iron Widow during the pandemic as well. And, you know, they were in the STEM field. And we've interviewed a lot of authors who came from like very, like technical backgrounds, like finance, and uh, like science. And it's just very interesting to me, because growing up, I think we're told that you can only pursue one or the other. And the possibility of doing both. It's never kind of like been an option, especially yeah. for Asian and Asian-Americans.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think growing up, I had a very clear idea of what, a, of what an appropriate career was meant to look like. But I think, you know, like going through the pandemic, that kind of blurs a lot of boundaries and that kind of changed a lot of people's perception of what a nine to five job must be or what a career must be or what an occupation must be. It led to the rise of well, I don't want to call it that but the rise of side hustles and I think it did show that you could pursue other passions on the side you could pursue other hobbies um, and even though it is hard and it does require a certain amount of freedom and privilege in your life to be able to juggle multiple things but it yeah like there is the you know, possibility of doing that and that you don't have to just stick to one thing your whole life
1: yeah so let's Move on to your debut novel, The Fraud Squad. Uh, can you give our listeners a brief synopsis of what your book is about?
2: Yeah, so it's best compared to The Devil Wears Prada meets Crazy Rich Asians. It's about a working class woman who dreams of writing for Singapore's poshest magazine. But because of her working class background, she's not being considered for the job. And so in order to impress editor-in-chief, she comes up with a plan of pretending to be a socialite and infiltrating high society and shenanigans Sue, And the whole time she's living in constant fear of being exposed because there is this uh, mysterious gossip columnist who's always hunting for high society dirt. And of course, there are other socialites around who are determined to bring her down.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned how your book was like pitched as Crazy Rich Asians meets Gossip Girl and Devil Wears Prada. But it also kind of reminded me of Inventing Anna, which was uh, based on the false New York socialite Anna uh, Sorkin. And yeah. also a bunch of there's a lot of Asian fake socialites. I've heard there stories are. about yeah. like Chinese influencers who yes. like managed to snag a billionaire and be able to like uh you know defraud them and I yeah. just thought it was really interesting. What was your specific inspiration for the book?
2: Yeah, I mean I feel like everyone thinks inspiration came from Inventing Anna, but when I was writing this book in like summer of 2020, Inventing Anna wasn't out yet. Most people, including myself, have not heard of Anna Sorkin. Um, I also did hear about those, like, Chinese, like, big socialites. There are even these, like, socialite boot camps in China that teach women how to appear wealthy in order to, like, cook a wealthy man. And so I knew of these stories. But I think my, um, my starting inspiration came from Crazy Rich Asians, which is one of my favorite books. And I just asked myself, you know, like, what if this story was told from the perspective of an outsider who wants to be a part of high society? as opposed to in the book itself, the main character, Risho Chu, she's an outsider and she wants nothing to do with it. She wants to stay as far away from it as possible. So I was just taking that scenario, but kind of flipping it upside down.
0: Yeah. Our listeners, if you don't know already, Kyla is from Singapore. Um, I'm just curious, like Crazy Rich Asians has been So influential in the Asian-American sphere, but we don't really get to hear a lot of opinions from Singaporeans. Like, what was was your thoughts when Crazy Rich Asians came out, um, like, book and movie-wise? Like, what are your thoughts on the impact?
2: Yeah, I honestly loved it so much. It was really like my first time seeing a book that has been published like globally and seeing places and street names that I recognize in a book. Like because, you know, growing up, almost all the books I consumed were published in the West. And so I grew up reading a lot about Manhattan and Fifth Avenue and London and Los Angeles in California. But I never really saw one that reflected my hometown or even mentioned my hometown. And so to see something like that enter mainstream popularity and for people like at my school, like non-Singaporeans, to actually realize that there is this country that exists called Singapore, I think that was a pretty proud moment for me. Um, And I just think it's such a fun book. It's very vibrant. It's definitely not representative of most of Singapore just because it is about like a very elite group. But I also don't think the author intended to represent the whole of Singapore, just the part of Singapore that he was familiar with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was something that stood out with your book is that your main character Sam is is a local girl. She grew up in Singapore. She is a part of that culture. And something that really I really enjoyed is you know your depiction of you know you know in these books you have your main character and then their their BFFs. If this was like a Western story, they'd be going to brunch on Sundays. But in your book, they go to the kopitiam to drink kopi. And like this was something that was not really focused on in books like Crazy Rich Asians because it's a piece of Singapore Malay culture that they may overlook. How did you go about, you know, like making sure you got the vibes right to represent like this aspect of Singaporean culture?
2: Yeah, I think just from like personal experience and my own life, And I definitely don't think my book captures the whole of Singapore. It does not represent all Singaporeans. It represents a slice of life that I'm familiar with, that I grew up with. Um, And I think just based on my own experience, I did what I knew justice, but I wouldn't be able to speak for what other Singaporeans out there think of Singapore or what their life is like.
0: You're one of those authors who write what you know. And, yeah for uh, sure okay
2: <laughs> I was about to say like
0: did you have to do a lot of research like how familiar are you with Singaporean high
2: society um I'm familiar with it through like the kind of work experiences I've had in the past which is true you know like the magazines I mentioned earlier like the high-end high fashion magazines and that's definitely like only one perspective into it and I'm sure other people have other Perspectives into it, but I did manage to observe like the socialites up close. And I think because I was just an intern when I was working in those magazines and I was younger and I had more of a baby face, they felt more comfortable saying certain things in front of me that they otherwise might not have. So yeah, it was pretty candid.
0: Uh, what was the fanciest freebie that you've snagged uh, during your time interning for these uh, fashion magazines?
2: oof like definitely designer accessories but I think like the meals were really good I still think about some of them very fondly I think I mentioned a few of them in my book
0: wow they fed you that's like so kind I feel like, <laughs> yeah, most, no, like foot tasting. most fashion internships they like treat you like a slave pretty much
2: (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) I think the Singapore industry is like kinder maybe maybe because it's smaller and everyone kind of knows everyone else but yeah people are in general really kind and the food tastings are really good but you know it's always weird because I'm I come from like a fashion magazine and I'll go to a food tasting then there'll be people from like professional food magazines like their fancy camera equipment and it was always very intimidating and it would know all those like fancy culinary terms and i'll just have to try
1: to keep up yeah i mean sometimes stories about high society fashion they get a little bogged down sometimes with like all the descriptions of all the name brands and all all the the fancy things that people drive and wear and i felt your story strikes a pretty good balance on not getting bogged down by those things um how did you go about writing a story about like inaccessible wealth in a in a very accessible way
2: um i don't think i really thought very consciously about it i just kind of wrote it in a style that I would want to read. And I guess it would appeal to some people. It might not appeal to other readers. And I think it's fine. Uh,
0: I I have a question as, you know, you're Singaporean and I feel like Singapore high society or Asian high society in general is very different from American high society. Like when we think American high society, I mean, I guess like the first First thing that pops up is like the Kardashians, but not really. I guess there, I guess we have like the Vanderbilts and the Kennedys. Yeah, there's but also like East Coast, difference...
1: West Coast, old money, new money. There's like,
0: yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there's also like influencers who are able to rise to high society. Uh, what differences have you noticed between Singaporean high society and American high society?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think as Singaporean or even just like Asian high society, it's a lot more hidden, a lot more behind the scenes. And I think a really big reason for that actually comes from our last name. So as um, y'all might know, like I think Asian last names or Chinese last names in particular, like are all pretty common. Actually, you two have pretty unique last names, but you know, in general things like limbs or tans or chuns, they're all like pretty common last names. Whereas for Americans, like if you think of high society, their last names are all something super like hard to pronounce and something super obscure and it stands out. And so when you hear someone with that last name, you immediately think, oh, yeah, they're from this family and this family sells, I don't know, like oil and you immediately know their entire background. Whereas in Singapore you would run into someone and they would mention their last name and you know like 50 other people with the same last name. <laughs> and that's why I think it's a lot more it's a lot easier for people from very wealthy backgrounds to just kind of like get by as a normal seeming person. And also, I think fashion does play quite a big role because I think in countries where there are like um, the four seasons, there's more reasons to dress up. Um, But in Singapore, it's summer all year round. Everyone wears shorts and t-shirts. So, you know, there's not really much opportunity to showcase a designer fashion when you have to wear the same thing as everyone else.
1: (laughs) I remember visiting Singapore in January once and it was like 90 to 100 degrees out. Um, But all of the stores were selling winter clothes. They were selling coats and jackets and I forgot yeah, to pack shorts. So, so I had to go to, I think I ended up going to a gap and finding shorts there. But I went to like five different places and couldn't find any shorts to wear.
2: Yeah, I think once it, um, in December, the temperature dropped to like 70 <laughs> and it made front page headlines. People were like, Singaporeans do not know how to deal with cold weather. It's like 70 degrees and people are in like huge puffer coats.
0: <laughs> that's hilarious considering uh, like my roommate, my college roommate uh, is Singaporean. And she used to tell me like how she would have to like take two showers, like one shower in the morning before she goes to school, and then like another shower when she came back home. Because oh yeah, just I be did it too, drenched like... in sweat.
2: Oh okay, no. Oh, I thought she, you meant like hot showers because she's so cold. Like I'm freezing right now, and I'm in California.
1: Yeah, I mean Californians also get a bad rap of not being able to handle extreme weather,s too. So
2: yeah, that's true. It was raining quite a bit, and yeah, we all
1: freaked out. <laughs> That is something we used I, I I keep saying this. When I was a kid growing up in LA, we had rainy seasons. It's just, you know, the past decades we didn't have any rain. So everyone, yeah. there's a whole generation of kids who grew up not experiencing it. And that's why mm. we get this um reputation. But you know, compare yeah. that to you know Asia, like Taiwan, Singapore, where it rains all the time. Um, it definitely yeah. is it's a change. Um it, it
2: really is. <laughs>
1: Um, speaking of Singapore, I noticed that because your character, your main character Sam, is from a working class background, um, she deals a lot with subsidies from the government. And you know, Singapore government is something that is not very familiar for a lot of readers in the West. You know, we know Singapore as like a city state in Southeast Asia. It's where Crazy Rich Asians takes place, and you no know, people know about. The hawker centers and the plastic bag coffees because of travel shows, but that's kind of the extent of pe- what people know. But, you know, Singapore is a very, like, it's prohibitively expensive to live in Singapore, right? Unless you have mm-hmm. a lot of government subsidies, especially for, you know, the people who live there. And I thought it was really cool that your book explores those um, aspects of Singaporean life. Like, was it important for you to make sure that this side of Singapore was also represented?
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, for instance, um, one thing that all Singaporeans would know about is our public housing scheme like most people live in public housing apartments that are built by the government and they are cheaper than p- private apartments but it was actually pretty hard for me to describe what they're like because i don't know if that's really an equivalent in america or in the west where most people would stay in these sort of like high-rise buildings that were just like entirely that are partly funded by the government And that was something that was a little bit hard to describe in my book without going to a lot of technical detail or without using a lot of acronyms. And also there is this one common feature in Singaporean apartment buildings called the void deck. I don't know if you have it here in America, but it basically refers to the ground floor and no one stays on the ground floor. It's like just this empty communal space that people would like just like walk around in at night or they would like hang out. And that was like a really unique feature that um I had to t- that I had to take a little longer to think of how to explain it in a way that would be understandable to a non-Singaporean. Yeah, so just like little things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean one of my favorite things about this book was how each of the fraud squad members have a complicated relationship with their parents, whether they're rich or working class. Um we talked a little bit about the differences. Uh, between Singaporean high society and American high society. And I think one of the main differences is um, just how strictly gender roles and like this notion of legacy is entrenched deeply in the parents' expectations of their children's career and lifestyles. Um, What did you want your readers to take away from your portrayal of this Asian parent and child relationship?
2: Yeah, um, I think it's something that like all these complications, all these complicated family dynamics, all the expectations that parents have for their children and the children's own fear of not being able to live up to those expectations, that kind of transcends socioeconomic background. And I think it's something that's pretty universal and something that I know a lot of my friends and I have also experienced at some point in our life. I think the older I get, the one thing I realized is that everyone comes from complicated family backgrounds in their own way. And that was something that I wanted to convey. And just like how people from seemingly different backgrounds can have this one thing in common. And I think just even beyond the parent-child relationship, I really wanted to convey that every member of the fraud squad is a fraud in their own way. Besides just my main character, Samantha, who seems to be the most obvious example of a fraud but each person feels like they don't belong. Each person aspires to have something more. And they're willing to go um, do certain extreme things to get what they want.
0: Yeah, I mean, this book has been kind of pitched to me as uh, a romance. And I was like, I don't think this oh, is a romance. I, I Because what...
2: One, I mean, it has three people on the cover. Yeah, and... yeah, that's why I wanted them to include three people because I didn't want people mistaking it for a romance. <laughs> but then, you know, I got feedback that some people thought it was going to be a, what do you call it, like a triple? Oh, like, like a, a poly... like a three people couple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 this is not meant to be a romance. Like, this is very much women's fiction with the focus being on my main character.
0: Yeah, and. I, I just love how there is this focus on friendships, you know, like I feel like as an adult, it's very hard to maintain friendships, especially if you're of a different class, if you have different jobs. And I thought you did a really good job showing how, you know, those dynamics change and how that can strain a relationship.
2: Yeah, um like when i moved from singapore to california to attend stanford i was leaving you know my family behind my friends behind and i think gradually i had to kind of change a part of myself in order to fit into this new environment maybe i didn't need to change myself but at that point in time i felt like i had to in order to assimilate in order to not stand out and every time i went back home to singapore i felt a little bit more and more like a stranger to my own parents to my old friends I could feel this like distance between us and it wasn't that anyone was doing anything wrong. It was just that like I was slowly evolving and maybe they were slowly evolving too. And we're just like going in separate directions. And I think looking back, that does make me a little bit more, that does make me quite sad. And that was something I did a lot of reflection on when I was living alone in the pandemic and really homesick and missing my parents. And I had time to just kind of slow down and kind of see how different of a person I become and how certain relationships have become strained.
1: I'm still thinking about the person who would look at your cover and think, that's a throuple. That,
2: that's a. I know, they were really <laughs> disappointed I wasn't, I think. They were like, I feel misled. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say.
0: I think it's because your publisher is Berkeley and Berkeley is known to publish a lot of romances. So I can <laughs> see why people are like, oh, this is a romance. And I'm like, the the title
2: of the book is called fraud squad like, i know literal I gonna, squad. yeah <laughs> yeah this is for anyone listening please do not go in expecting this to be a romance there is a romance plot but that is very secondary in my opinion and to be honest i do think that writing romance it's kind of like one of the things that doesn't really come naturally to me um I think when I was writing it, just because I grew up reading so many romances, I felt like in almost every single YA book I read, there was like a romance. And every single adult novel I read, there was a romance. And so I kind of had thought to myself that a book must have a romance, which now I realize doesn't have to be the case. But back then, I felt like I had to write it. So yeah.
0: I mean, this book is mostly... You know, like adult coming of age, like you have a dream job and you do whatever it takes to get that job, especially during a recession. I feel like so many people, you know, in their 20s, even like their 30s, can understand like that struggle. So yeah, yeah, like people who are saying this is a romance novel. I, I hate to break it to you, but it, it's not.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's really not. And actually, when I was looking for an agent, there was this one agent that was interested in signing me as their client. But then um, they said like, oh, you know, I feel like this could work really well as a young adult novel. I feel like there's really a market for this. What do you think about changing the setting to be in high school and then they were giving me all sorts of suggestions about how I could replace the mentions of alcohol with soda and something more like decadent things with something a little bit more age appropriate. And I was like, yeah, but what about the career aspect? Like, how am I going to change that? And then the agent was like, oh, right. Forgot about that.
0: Also, like, do they realize that in Singapore and Asia, you like all you do is study until college. <laughs> like you do yeah. not have freedom. So it's like. Where would they have
2: all of these parties? Where would they have exactly. the free time? <laughs> Especially, yeah, I know. And I think the housing in Asia or in Singapore is very different. Like, most people live with their parents till, I don't know, like their mid 20s or late 20s. Like, you're not going to be able to just bring a whole bunch of people back home to party unless you're super wealthy, which, yeah, <laughs> I guess you could get away with that.
0: So, your book mentions. Pygmalion and its modern adaptations, My Fair Lady and Pretty in Pink. And I thought it was just interesting because those uh, stories, they center around the trope of the women uh, being transformed by a man. And, you know, Samantha's the one who's like, I want to be part of high society. I want to be the one who's organizing this scheme. So um, was that a trope that you had in mind of subverting from the very beginning?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think like even with um, you know, like my fair lady or pretty woman, something that I never really quite sat right with me was the implication that the man felt like the woman wasn't good enough and that she needed fixing and that he had to be the one to fix her. And that always just kind of like irked me a little bit. And I really wanted, you know, the woman to be in the driving role. Like that's something she wants. And it's not because she personally doesn't think she's good enough. It's just that she's jaded. She realizes that meritocracy isn't going to really get her anywhere. And sometimes you have to, you know, do certain things in order to get your dream job or in order to achieve your goals. Um, and, But, you know, the whole time she thinks of it as like a means to an end rather than as having to change herself because she is fundamentally lacking, which she which she isn't. And I do think that the other two characters who help her in her scheme are all pretty respectful of where she's coming from.
0: Yeah, I love how the scheme is pretty innocent in in my opinion. It's like, I just wanna have a job in in the magazine industry. This is just my way of getting my foot in the door rather than I'm gonna steal money from a bunch of rich people. (laughs) And that's the first thing that comes to mo- mind when I think fraud. I'm like, yeah, yeah stealing money from people. <laughs>
1: yeah, the fraud in your book is actually pretty innocuous. Like no, technically no lies were were spoken.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, um, I mean, I think I came up with the name Fraud Squad just because it rhymed, and I really like the sound of it, but it's really not a fraud. If you think about it, I think everyone does a little bit of, you know, picking it till you make it every day. Like people tell white lies or stretch the truth on your resumes all the time. And I work in Silicon Valley where I'm constantly surrounded by startup founders who like grossly exaggerate how well their company is doing. So this kind of fake it, how you make it behavior is I think very common. And I think it's something that most of us have been taught when we are very young. And so I think this is why this team could be appealing to a lot of people because it's just such a universal behavior.
1: Yeah. And, it's it's a story that we've seen a lot. Like we mentioned, there's been a lot of adaptations of Macmillan. There's been a lot of stories about someone becoming someone else to like pursue a dream or a goal, and then you know it eventually unraveling. And these beats are familiar, but the the fact that you also infuse your own, not only your own background, but this culture and Singapore, and showing us something that we haven't seen before in these stories, I think this is something that your book does really, really well. And I, I had a lot of fun reading it.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that that means a lot. And actually, I'm really glad you asked me about the Pygmalion team because I don't think any other interview has really asked me that. And I've done quite a few interviews um, since my book came out. So, yeah, I appreciate you catching that and then asking me about it. And, you know, I think everyone says that there are no original ideas left in the world. And it is true that most books these days are using, you know, very classic tropes. But I do think that every author can put their own spin on it, um, just infused with their own background, their own perspective, their own history and their own upbringing. And that's another piece of advice, I guess, if anyone is um, interested, which is don't be daunted by the fact that you cannot come up with a wholly original idea. I think the execution can be original as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like, you know, like, uh, like my writing professors have also said, like, "Hey, there, there are no original ideas left, but you're original. So whatever you put out into the world will be original." Um, but with the Pygmalion, yeah, like I went through a whole Greek mythology phase when I was younger, so I did catch a lot of uh, classic. Uh, references in your book, and I don't want to spoil
2: anything, but that oh, was really fun to see. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I think not everyone caught that.
1: So your book is out now, and it's been getting a lot of buzz. You got was oh, it a Good Morning America featured a book, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was a buzz pick.
1: <laughs> how has that been? How has been? How has the response been to your book been for
2: you? Um, it's been very touching, honestly. Like I think just you know knowing that people beyond myself or my publishing team are reading it. Like that's such a bizarre thing to even imagine that something I created is now being consumed by people I don't even know from all around the world. It's very humbling. Um, It's very touching. It's very validating. It's it's just like such an awesome experience, very once in a lifetime. And it's definitely been a whirlwind And I'm just glad that I have a great support system around me because this is something that's really hard to go through alone. There are so many highs and so many lows. And I think it's emotional, like upheaval is a lot for most people. So having friends around you that you can count on and having friends whom you knew before you became an author is so important because it really does remind you that there's something way more than just publishing out there that your life and your world and who you are as a person is so much more than this one book you've created.
0: Yeah. I mean, you talk about like highs and lows and, you know, like this is your debut novel, but you were able to score a six figure deal and it was with penguin random house. And that's not something that a lot of authors, especially debut authors can uh, boast. So like, how did it feel when you got the news? And did you feel like a lot of dread while you were <laughs> writing um, a book that was getting like so much attention from the publishing industry?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that this takes a deal. Honestly, a lot of credit goes to my agent, Alex, who is very amazing at what she does. Um, she She's like such a business woman and she really knows how to get the best deal for her clients. So all props to her. And I... You know, I think my book came at a time when there was already um, Asian adult authors who were already making a name for themselves and it kind of showed the publishers that there is a market out there for my stories. Maybe a few years ago, it wouldn't have been a case. So yeah, I think having people like Kevin Kwan or Grace Lee or Jesse Sutanto to pave the way really helped as well. And yes, it is stressful having expectations. Um, I think that I'm a bad better writer now than I was when I wrote this book, which is like two and a half years ago. Like I've changed so much as a person. I think I've gotten better at writing. I now know much more about publishing and about the craft. But there is this sudden freedom and carefreeness I had when I was writing this first book that I don't think I'll ever be able to rediscover again. Because now this is a job. I am on contract. I have deadlines I have expectations and yeah it will just not be the same as my debut.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned Jessie Q Santanto. We had her on the show, and like her books are just so funny to it's me. So and... funny! Oh my gosh! <laughs> like, 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 so
2: bonkers. Yes, like the adult aunties dynamics, like I see in my own family. Yeah, so it's really funny.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really nice to see authors outside of just America. Um, breaking into the industry like we're yes. we're seeing a lot more like Asian Australians and you know Singaporeans and uh, people from Europe and I'm like wow there are Asians outside of North America I feel like we're very insular
2: so it's yes, it's yes, been like absolutely. refreshing
0: yeah. yeah
2: and I love the Asian humor she has in her book which I think is a little bit different from Western humor oh but yeah it's very comforting <laughs> to read about I was like wow this is what I grew up with yeah yeah uh
0: i mean we briefly talked about the the cover um i just like curious like how much input did you have i I know most of the time like authors don't really know anything about their cover until their book comes out even so um like when you got like the first look at the cover like what was your what was your thought what was your first impression
2: yeah, oh my gosh, that's such a great question. And it's so funny because I think that maybe contrary to a lot of other authors' experiences, I was asked for my opinion from the very beginning. Oh I my was God. asked for what I wanted, <laughs> what I didn't want. And then I had literally zero idea. Like, I'm not a visual person at all. Like, when I was writing this book, I had no physical conception of what my characters look like. I had to go back in and add that all in. Um, so when they asked me for my opinions, I was like, um, I guess I want something gold and shimmery because high society. And I didn't want my characters to look whitewashed. And I wanted there to be all three of them so that no one thought it was a romance. Romance? Yeah, and those were <laughs> the only comments I gave because I couldn't think of anything else. I was like, just do whatever you want. And then they came back with this and I was like, yep, I'm sold. <laughs> so yeah, I, like, I was very so, like- useless.
0: So I'm guessing that you didn't have like a Pinterest board or anything, and you're like, "This is this celebrity is what my
2: character." Would no, look that's like. another. That's another question I struggle with, which is if you were to cast um, actors for like a movie of your book, or your dream actors or actresses? I'm like, I have no idea.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm the same way. Like, I feel like if you ask me to name actors, I'm like, I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I can name the characters that they play, but I honestly, like, their celeb life, I have no idea. Oh, so... I actually know a lot
2: about celebrity pop culture.
0: I'm just bad at I'm relating guessing, it to my own
2: book.
0: I'm guessing, I mean, you worked for, like, magazines and stuff and, um, and, and, like, whatnot, so I would guess that you would be more in tune with celebrity culture. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just brought up your magazine experience. Like, what was, like, the most interesting or memorable article that you've written
2: for a magazine? Ooh. Okay. Um, okay, so article I've written, it was actually for Vogue Singapore. It was actually around this time this book deal was announced, but I'm related. So I'm a fashion and lifestyle writer, but on Instagram, I follow this makeup artist called, okay, I'm blinking on her social media handle, but I think it's something like Monoliths Beauty. And basically she does makeup for her Monoliths eyes. I mean, growing up, like all the makeup artists I follow, they all had like, you know, like those Western double eyelids. Even Michelle Phan had like really like beautiful double eyelids. And I have monoliths, so I could never use that same kind of makeup on myself. And I always just wonder like why it looks so weird on my own face. So when I discovered this Instagram makeup artist, I was so excited. And even though I don't write for beauty and they already have their own writers, I really wanted to pitch the story And it took like a few weeks to get it approved and then to reach out to her and everything. But I managed to interview her and that was really exciting. So yeah, but besides an article, another thing that I did that I really really liked was actually being a hand model. So I was a hand model on two separate occasions. One was for a jewelry brand, one was for like a perfume brand. And it's just a very bizarre experience being the one doing a photo shoot.
0: That's really interesting. Wow, you must have like beautiful
2: hands then. Like, you, like oh, I really tried. I don't. I think I just got roped in because it was like the pandemic and it was like hard to find models, and I just happened to be there and available. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, so what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your upcoming projects?
2: Yeah. So I have two more novels. One's an adult novel. They both come out from Penguin Random House. So my next adult novel comes out at the end of this year. I think it's November tentative. And it combines my two favorite things, fashion and Silicon Valley, which is where I currently work. So it's about a woman who used to work in fashion in New York City, but then she has to change her job and she finds herself working at a tech startup in Silicon Valley. So she feels like she feels like a complete outsider. I think this is what I like writing about, like outsiders grappling with imposter syndrome. I don't know what it says about myself, but yes. So I, I'm I think excited. It's, it, about I it. think it's because
0: we're we're like millennials and Gen Z, like that we is live true. with the imposter syndrome, especially with social media. I know. like seeing, We feel so
2: lost. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like you see
0: people, and you're like, wow, they're living my dream life. But the truth is, it's it's a lot of Photoshop and a lot of like. Magic,
1: everyone's a fraud squad, everyone's on the fraud squad. (laughs) No,
2: honestly, everyone's a fraud, and I think I like writing about like career, like women exploring their careers because that's kind of where I am now in my life. Like, when I wrote the fraud squad, I was looking for a full time job, I was heading to my last year of university, and when I'm writing the second adult novel now, like, I'm it's only been like one year in my full time job, so I'm still very new to this whole thing of being a working adult. So that's my um second adult novel coming out in November. And then next year I have a children's novel coming out. It's about a girl who plays chess. And I grew up playing chess. So like I said, I only write about things I know well. Oh and my
0: god, were you like were you like the Queen's Gambit? Or
2: like were everyone thought that I was inspired by the Queen's Gambit, but I wrote this book before The Queen's Gambit became popular. In fact, I really wanted a title The Queen's Gambit and I found out about the show. Oh no. And I was so bummed out. I was like, dang it, Netflix. Or I guess, dang it, whoever wrote the book, The Queen's Gambit. <laughs> yeah, but it's about a girl who plays chess and she makes a bet with a sexist teammate to prove that girls can be as good as boys when it comes to chess. Oh.
0: Well, thank you so much for uh, being on our show, Kyla. This was a really fun conversation. Thank um, you. Yeah, you've yeah.
1: me very
2: interesting questions.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, congratulations on your launch. And um, yeah, we hope to have you back sometime on Books and Bulba. Thanks for joining us.
2: I hope so too. Thank <laughs> you so much, Marvin and Rira.
1: And that was Kyla Zhao, the author of The Fraud Squad, available now at Booksellers Everywhere. Um, As always, you can also pick up her book at the Books and Bulba Bookshop, uh, where all of your purchases will go to support your local bookstores, as well as the Books and Bulba Book Club. Uh, I guess before we go, Reba, can you remind us what we're reading for Book Club for the month of January?
0: All right. So december we started reading the first 12 chapters of *Babel* by rf kuang and for this month we'll be reading the rest of the book so we will be spoiling the entire second half of the book a lot of stuff happens so i am very <laughs> excited to talk about it with you marvin yeah
1: and that episode will be coming up um, probably if not this week then next week so uh, please uh, stay tuned for our exciting conclusion to our discussion of babble by rf kwan on that note um, thank you so much for listening to books and boba um, and we'll see you all then bye everybody bye. thanks for listening to books and boba this podcast was hosted by marvin yue and Ri Rayu and edited and produced by marvin yue follow the book club on twitter and instagram by going to at books and boba and engage with us on goodreads on our goodreads group you can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app don't forget you can support books and boba and asian american authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com.
2: Hi, I'm Quincy Cho. And I'm Kay Khan-Apu.
0: And we host Marvel Makeup. It's a podcast where I teach Quincy a little about Marvel. And I teach Kay a little bit about makeup. Join us as we watch and talk about every movie and TV show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm mostly watching for the first time. And join us as we apply makeup stuff to our faces, which I'm using for the first time. Marvel Makeup is part of the Potluck Podcast Collective, and you can find new episodes every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can catch video versions of Marvel and Makeup on our YouTube channel. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And please give us five stars so our Asian moms will understand
2: why we buy so much electronic equipment. Because it's for this podcast, Marvel and Makeup. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast
1: was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Rayu, and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Booksandboba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to Booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at Booksandboba.com.